0: Chapter eleven. Hebrews, Chapter eleven. Hebrews, Chapter eleven, and we'll be looking at verse five and six tonight. The background concerning uh The man we find in Hebrews chapter 11 verse five. Uh, we'll uh, talk about that in a little bit. Let's just go ahead and read verse five and six. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because David or God had translated him, uh, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, that he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You find the background of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, which is sometimes called the great obituary chapter. Uh, If we uh, turn there to uh, hold your place in uh, Hebrews, but turn to Genesis chapter 5, Uh, starting with Adam there. We won't read uh, the entire chapter, but uh, you can look through and kind of skim through with me as we kind of look at Genesis chapter 5, beginning with Adam in verse 5, going down through Lamech in verse 31. And you find these words over and over and over again, "...and he died." It says, In all the days of Adam lived 930 years, and he died. And then it talks about his son, Seth, lived 912 years, and he died. Enos died at the age of 905. Canaan uh, was 910 years old when he died. Uh, and then in uh, verse 13, it talks about uh, leol. Uh, 840 years, and uh, uh, excuse me, there was a Jared who lived 962 years and he died. Methuselah, after uh, living for 969 years, he set a record, but he died. Uh, Lamech preceded his son Meth- Methuselah in death, he only lived to uh, 707. And of course it ends the chapter ends with Noah uh just he died at a young age of 500. And uh, so here you have all these uh men in the uh chapter 5 of Genesis. Now in the heart of this story though of death is a marvelous and miraculous account of Enoch, the man who never died. It's a really a thrilling account that stands out like a beautiful, refreshing oasis in the dry desert of doom and death. Look at it in verse 18. Verse 18 of Genesis 5, And Jared lived 160 and two years, and begat Enoch. And Jared lived after begat Enoch 800 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 960 and two years, and he died. And Enoch lived 60 and five years, and begat Methuselah, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. For Enoch, you have this, uh, instead of an awesome disheartening, and he died, We have an enthusiastically informed, and God took him. What a way to go. Uh, The record of his earthly departure is brief, but it's very gloriously filled with meaning. You see, in all the word of God, of only two men, it is specifically stated that they walked with God. Although there were others that did, of course but it only states them, uh, very specifically, two of men. So in addition to Enoch, the only other one was Noah. And even more interesting, Noah, or Enoch, is the only one in Scripture other than the Lord himself in his earthly ministry of whom it is written, and he pleased God. And yet Enoch lived in days of great apostasy, uh, wickedness, Uh, There was corruption, there was godlessness. His time was not only following the fall of Adam, but even more significant perhaps. It was in the days immediately preceding the terrible flood that nearly wiped out the entire human race. And that took place right after the death of Enoch's son, Methuselah. Now the wickedness of that time is highlighted in the book of Jude. Uh, and uh, in Jude chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches with ungodly sinners have spoken against them. You'll notice the repetition of one word there in Jude, and that's the word ungodly. So that puts a emphasis on the wickedness during Enoch's time. Yet in the middle of the corruption of his generation, Enoch named his firstborn son Methuselah. And we're told the meaning of his name is roughly defined, when he dies, judgment. That's the definition of Methuselah, when he dies, judgment. And when the year he died, judgment came in the form of a worldwide flood. Now, I want to consider basically two things that stand out about the faith of Enoch, and then I want us to make an application to our lives. Notice, first of all, Enoch's testimony. Enoch's testimony. What was Enoch's testimony? Well, his testimony was that he pleased God. Back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, By faith, Enoch was translated, He should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Literally, he was well-pleasing. He well-pleased him. The word for pleased is only used one other time in Hebrews. In fact, in the entire New Testament. Where it speaks of God being well-pleased with a believer's sacrifice of godly living in Hebrews 13 and verse 16. So what was it about Enoch that was well-pleasing to God? Well, since the writer of Hebrews gleaned this information from the record of Moses given in Genesis, we know that it was a relation in relation to his walk with God. Remember this truth. Nothing makes God any happier or pleases him more than his children walk the walk of faith. Why is this? Well, there are at least five important things about walking with God. Now, by the way, we looked at Abel last week and his faith. We called it the way of faith. And so we're going to call Enoch's the walk of faith. The five important things that walking with God demonstrates. Number one is reconciliation. It was the herdsman and the gatherer of sycamore fruit, Amos. Although he's described as no prophet, neither a prophet's son quoting God's controversy with his people who asked, can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3.3. 3. The obvious answer and the one God intended is an emphatic no. Walking together shows agreement, sympathy, harmony, accord, unity. Spiritually speaking, it pictures those who were once enemies but are now reconciled. It's the description the apostle Paul gives to us in Ephesians chapter two. There can be no walking with God until there is peace. The enmity between a holy God and a rebellious sinner must be ended for such companionship to be possible. Listen what it says in Ephesians two fourteen to seventeen. It says, "For he is our peace, who hath made." both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them who are nigh, or that are were nigh. And so there can be no walking with God until there is peace. Enoch experienced experience a sample of what Paul wrote when Paul wrote about the coming Messiah's ministry in Colossians 120, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. And so in this, Enoch was certainly a type of Christ. Walking with God means to be reconciled to him. And that only comes by trusting Christ as your personal Savior and putting your faith in his blood, which was shed on Calvary's cross for your sin. Now notice also that walking with God is demonstrated through regeneration this is an absolute prerequisite for walking with God. It is imperative that one be born of the Holy Spirit of God before he can walk with him. A new nature is required for such a walk. This is the truth that Paul emphasized in another place, it's 2 Corinthians 6.14, where he said, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, but for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? So sin separates. Righteousness can have no fellowship with unrighteousness. Light can have no communion with darkness. For Enoch to walk with God, it was necessary for him to have a new nature, a sinless nature, a nature of righteousness. And we could say he had to be born again. Someone would say, well, Pastor, were people in the Old Testament born again, just like they were in the New Testament? Well, certainly when people put their faith in God, they knew about Jesus in the sense that there was a Messiah that was coming someday. They were looking forward to that time when the Lord would come, the Messiah would come. And just as we spoke about Last week, when we talked about Abel, we said that in making this offering, he was looking forward to a day when the Messiah would come and save his people. There is only one way to come to God. There wasn't one way in the Old Testament, and another way in the New Testament. There is only one way. Jesus said, I am the way. And so you're either going to be looking forward to Christ's death on the cross, or you're going to be looking back to Christ's death on the cross. And it was the same for Enoch as it is for you and for me today. For by grace are you saved through faith. So it's reconciliation. It's regeneration. And then walking with God is demonstrated through resignation. This involved a yielding of himself to God. A giving up of his own will, his own plans, and his own desires. Christ instructed his disciples in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. You see, walking with God is being yoked with him. Notice in, those, in that verse it said, take my yoke. He said, take my yoke. It's voluntary. Voluntary. It's not something forced upon us. The walk of faith sings with the writer of a familiar invitation song that says, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence, daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken, take me Jesus, take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And so walking with God in resignation involves keeping in step with him. The one who is walking does not run ahead as Peter did in the garden of Gethsemane when he cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. Neither should he lag behind because uh, as Peter did when three times he denied the Lord in the final time with cursing and swearing. So walking with God is demonstrated through reconciliation, regeneration, resignation, and then righteousness. This aspect with God is summarized by the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 6 and 7, where it says, If we say we have no we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus. Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. According to the divine principle that John is setting forth there, Enoch's life had to be holy for him to walk with God. You see, one cannot walk very close to God when he's holding hands with the devil. And that's why Paul pleaded with the Christians in Rome, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that is why John begged his readers to love not the world, neither the things of the world that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Exodus thirty-four fourteen tells us that the name of God is jealous. One of the names of God is jealous. He will not stand for any two-timing on the part of those who want to walk with him. You're going to walk with with God or you're going to walk with the devil. And so then, finally, walking with God is demonstrated by results. Did you know that you cannot walk and stand still? I know that's a revelation for some of you. You cannot walk and stand still. Walking suggests advancing, progress, going forward, getting somewhere. If you're going to walk to the mailbox, you can't get there if you don't put one foot in front of the other and take those steps. If you're going to walk down the street, if you're going to walk from your car to the church or to the grocery store, you're going to have to make progress. You're going to have to move. In the case of a child of God, it speaks of growth and grace, growth in spiritual knowledge, understanding, growth, growth in peace and love and assurance and faith. Now, we're told that Enoch lived 365 days and at least 300 of them he sp- were spent in advancing with God, going forward in faith. So no wonder God took him home. He was truly one of those that's described at the end of Hebrews chapter 11 as being too good for this world. It says in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. Well, that was Enoch. There's a little girl who had her version of this story. It may not have been far off because as she returned from Sunday school one Sunday morning to tell her mother the class had learned that day about a wonderful man named Enoch, She vividly described how this dear man and God used to take long walks together. And when the mother asked how the story ended, the little girl excitedly responded, Well, one day, after an especially long walk, God said to Enoch, You're too far from home today. Why don't you just come home and stay with me? That's probably pretty accurate, because that's what happened. I've already mentioned that Enoch lived 365 years, and at least 300 of them were spent in advancing with God. And that's based on Genesis chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, where it says, And Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah, and Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And while he may have walked with God during part of that first 65 years, the only way we can be sure of Uh, is the last 300 years, because it was after he begat Methuselah. Could it have been that the coming of this child led him to such close fellowship with the Lord? Again, we do not know for a certainty, but we do know from personal experience that when a father holds his firstborn child in his arms and looks into that little face, he has some serious thoughts, some thoughts about life about eternity and thoughts he probably never had before many a man has been full of made full of surrender of his life to god while kneeling beside the crib of a child whatever the reason we do not know but enoch walked with god for 3 full centuries that was his testimony he pleased god and so then we come to Enoch's translation. Here in our text, it says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. Again, if you go back to Genesis chapter 5, they'll, you'll find recorded and summarized some, their, uh, some 1,500 years of death's history. Resulting from Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Only once in a millennium and a half is the record varied. It does not say an Enoch died, it says an Enoch did not die. Someone has noted that Genesis chapter 5 is kind of a historic cemetery. They said every grave is the same death, death, death is all you see in this cemetery. It reminds me of my granddaughter. My five-year-old granddaughter, she was coming to visit us here in Spooner. Uh, She's the one from one of the granddaughters from North Carolina. And uh, her and her, her family, they were driving in on Highway 70, and they came past the cemeteries that were there. She says, oh, nuts, they're dying here too. Apparently she had had a conversation with her parents about what are all those things out there? You know, they pass several cemeteries as you come on Highway 70. But they're dying in Spooner too. Yeah, that's right. And that's what happened here in Genesis chapter 5. He died, he died, he died. It's a sharp and abrupt epitaph. And then, He goes on to say that one thing that made this cemetery unique, in the center of the cemetery, there's this monument. Not a tombstone. Doesn't look like a tombstone. But on it is written the words, these startling words, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Because here's a monument to a man who did not die, a monument to the man who was never buried. The monument stands out in the most violent contrast imaginable to the tombstones all about it. It's a contrast of life in the midst of death. And the author of Hebrews sat down to make a catalog of the faithful, he stopped in the same cemetery at the same monument and wrote, by faith, Enoch was translated. I want you to notice two things about Enoch's translation First of all, his translation was a picture. You ask, a picture of what? Well, it's a picture of sinners not seeing death. We find in John eleven twenty one that on the way to the tomb of Lazarus, that a conversation took place between the dead man's sister and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this conversation. It goes like this. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know... That even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which shall come into the world. The death described in that conversation is not physical, but spiritual. It was the same kind of death that Adam experienced when he died, or he defied the command command of God and partook of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Adam died spiritually that very moment, and the seeds of physical death began to work in his body. Although he did not actually die physically until centuries later, here we have Enoch's translation picture, the precious truth that one who believes in Christ will never experience the dreaded second death. It's a picture of sinners not seeing death, not being cast into the lake of fire, according to Revelation chapter 20. His translation is a picture. But secondly, his translation was a prophecy. Again, you ask, well, a prophecy of what? Well, of saints not seeing death. It was a picture of sinners not seeing death. Now it's a prophecy of saints not seeing death. It's the same prophecy that recorded by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, where it begins there. He wrote, But I would not that you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then it goes on to say, Then we which are alive... And remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And I think that's a tremendous thrill to realize we too, as Enoch, could be translated without seeing death. It's a very real possibility. Wouldn't that be great? Great just to go to heaven without dying. But did you hear the condition in the words at the beginning of the passage in 1 Thessalonians? If we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's exactly what one must believe to experience salvation, as Paul made plain in Romans 10, 9 through 13. Enoch prophesied Christ's second coming. Even though he was living in only the seventh generation from Adam, a couple of thousand years before Christ came the first time, Jude tells us that he foretold the second coming. Uh, We read that passage in Jude earlier, but here it is again. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his, his saints to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Someone has written, the faith of Enoch saw the hour when Christ would come in mighty power, translating all who know the Lord, who walk with him, obey his word. Thus God translated Enoch to a type, a picture ever true of those caught up to Christ on high of living saints who never die. So there you have two things that stand out about Enoch's faith, his testimony and his translation. So what does that mean for you and me? How can we please God today? Look at verse 6 of Hebrews 11. But without faith it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that de- diligently seek him. It's not hard to please it's not hard to please him without faith. It's totally impossible. It's not just hard, it's impossible. It cannot be done. Wasn't God gracious to make pleasing him a matter of simple faith? Anyone and everyone can do it. How easy it is to please him by merely believing. Suppose he said something like this. But without perfection, it is impossible to please me. Well, how hopeless would that be? We'd be in despair if he said, but without perfection, it is impossible to please me. None could or would have qualified, no one. All of us would have wallowed forever in divine displeasure, the recipients of his fierce fierce wrath. Think about it. As simple and sure as faith made it, multitudes seek his approval through some other way. They want to please him the hard way, by works, by sacrifice, by offerings, by a thousand and one tokens of their own toil. And like Cain, they bring to him the fruit of their own labor, their beautiful vegetables, but God will not accept it any more than he would accept the, uh, Cain's offering. Listen, there is, there is not the remotest chance you will ever please God apart from from faith. It is impossible. So what do we mean when we speak of faith? Well, two uh, basic fundamentals on that, two basic fundamentals of faith. Look at the second part of verse 6 where it says, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Two things that are taken for granted in the word of God. The Bible never argues for or against either one. It just simply assumes both. One of those basics is believing that God is. No atheist can manifest faith and please God. Uh, Psalm 14 verse 1 expresses that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Again, the poet put it this way, There is no God, the fool in secret said, There is no God that rules our earth or sky. Tear off the band that binds the wretched head, that God may burst upon his faithless eye. Is there no God? The stars and myriads have spread. If he look up, the blasphemy deny, while his own features in the mirror read... Reflect the image of divinity. Is there it no God? The stream that silver flows, the air he breathes, the ground he treads, the trees, the flowers, the grass, the sand, the each wind that blows, all speak of God. Throughout, one voice agrees and eloquent his dread existence shows. Blind to thyself, ah, see him fool in these. The other basic of God's pleasing faith is that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, faith believes that God answers prayer. And it's especially true in the case of saving faith. The word of God has promised for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Faith believes he will do exactly what he promised, saving each one and everyone who sincerely calls the same holds true for faith in the Christian life. Jesus assured his disciples in Matthew 7, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Faith takes him at his word. Charles Spurgeon told of a boy who asked his teacher in Edinburgh to request prayer for his sister that she might start reading her Bible. That was his prayer request, that his sister would start reading her Bible. So at the next prayer meeting, the teacher did so, and to much to the surprise of the teacher, Johnny got up and walked out. He thought it was kind of rude of the boy and told him so at school the next morning, and the boy responded, oh, please, sir, I didn't mean to be rude. I just thought I would go home and see if my sister was reading her Bible for the first time. You see, that was faith, wasn't it? And some would scoff at such simple childlike faith and call children, uh, uh, are called like children, writing to Santa Claus or begging for things from God. But we deny that praying is anything like a child's letters to Santa Claus. We believe God answers simple prayer, and that's a fundamental ground for obtaining favor for pleasing Him. Do you believe that he is? Do you believe he answers prayer? Then he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, in closing, let me just ask a few questions. Since he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, have you ever sought him? First of all, have you sought him in salvation? Isaiah 55 verse 6 and 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I read about a lone traveler who was apprehended by robbers as he walked along a lonely road and he took all of his possessions, including his money. It, even though he was, it was already night, they led him deeper into the forest. They tied a rope to a branch and a huge tree, and they instructed him to hold on to the end. And then they swung him out slightly, telling him there was a huge precipice, uh, precipice below. And the moment he would let go of the rope, he would fall to his death. And he was filled with fear, and he hung suspended in brutal agony. Finally, when his bent fingers could hold the rope no longer, they slid off and he fell six inches from from the ground. It had been a trick the robbers had used to give them time to escape. I think many today are kind of like that fearful traveler. They're afraid to let go and let God take over in their lives, fearful of all kinds of imagined consequences. Listen, if that is you tonight, just let go and let God show you that he is indeed God. You'll find the rock of ages underneath holding you up. So have you sought him in salvation? Secondly, have you sought him for manifestation of his power? We find his promise in Sol- uh, to Solomon in Second Chronicles 7, 14. Of course, this was to Israel, but the application can be made to us. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And if ever a country needed revival, our country does. Which leads me to the last question to believers, to Christians, where are the Enoch's today? Where are the men and women who are walking with God? Even when it means otherwise, walking alone. Where are the saints who are not fearful or hesitant about warning, the warning of God's judgment on the ungodly, as did Enoch? Do you know the way of faith? We saw that in Abel. Do you know the walk of faith? We see that in Enoch. Enoch. Are you pleasing God with your life? Remember, only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for...